Welcome to the Thrive Church Podcast. Join us today as we explore the word-giving, insightful solutions for day-to-day living. We pray this message encourages you throughout your day. You can also visit www.thrivechurch.me. Now, on to today's message team uh, for a couple of months now. That's why I'm up here today, because I'm a part of that group. I would not be up here. They didn't just pull me off the street and say, hey, we want you to preach on Sunday. I've known about this for a couple of months now. If you recognize me, it's probably because I've been on this stage before uh, leading worship, either singing or uh, playing guitar. So if you recognize me, that's where you would recognize me from. Now, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 5. And before we get into reading of this passage about prayer, I would like to tell you a little bit more just about who I am. Now, my family and I moved to Richmond this past September. We were actually living in Nashville at the time. Now, I lived in Nashville for about 11 years. I went to school for religion. And while I was in school, I started to go to this small church that was on the west side of town. And it was at this church that I actually met Elizabeth. Now, I didn't meet her my first Sunday there. I met her parents, who were the uh, leaders of the church. Her dad was the pastor of the church. And I have this, this, this draw. I'm, I'm drawn into uh, pastor's daughters for some reason. <laughs> It's crazy, uh, but I remember, when, I remember actually uh, surfing the website, and it needed some desperate help. I tell you what, this is back in 2006. It was pretty uh, funny looking, but I remember seeing this picture of the youth group, and uh, I saw Elizabeth in the picture, and I was thinking, that's a really pretty girl. I don't know how old she is, because I don't know how old this website is, so I might need to be careful. I'm in college now, but that's a really pretty girl. So when I found out that she was old, you know, my age, it was a big relief. <laughs> Her dad was the pastor, as I mentioned, and he knew that I was a religion major, and he got to know me as the year uh, went on, and actually invited me to come and be an intern uh, for the church, which is actually just code for, I want you to come and do all the crap work that I actually don't want to do, if you know anything about being an intern. So I needed the experience, and I was totally on board. I definitely have a passion for ministry and, and being involved with the church. I would, I would mop the floors. I would clean the toilets, and I did do all of those things. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but that's just how much of a passion and a heart for ministry I have. Now, I could go into the entire story of that time period, but if I did, we'd be here all day, and you would hate me because we're getting close to lunchtime, and you're already starting to think about what you're going to eat. And I don't want you to hate this church or me or think, you know what, I don't have anything to do with Jesus because I'm starving, you know? And this guy just won't stop talking. So I'm going to kind of do the condensed version of that. Basically, I went through several different roles while being in the church, and through a series of changes and events, Elizabeth and I actually became the co-lead pastors of this small church uh, right in Nashville. Now, one small detail that we need to mention is our church was actually located on about 33 acres of property. It's a lot of property, if you know anything about that. And we were a very small church. We had a very small congregation. We were not using all all of these resources that we had around our property. So we decided that we wanted to put more focus on individuals. We wanted to put more focus on ministry and reaching the lost. And instead of worrying about paying our bills, instead of worrying about how we're going to make it, 
or whether or not we could pay uh, the staff. So we decided that we wanted to sell that property that we wanted to scale back and focus more on ministry and less on building. So we actually sold that property back in 2011, and we sold that property to a, uh, a contractor that was interested in, in uh, building apartment buildings. And if you've been to Nashville, it's basically just one big apartment building anyways. Uh, it's a very transient city. We actually made, off of the sale of this property, $2.4 million dollars. We were this small church that didn't know whether or not we were going to make it. We didn't know whether or not we would be able to keep the lights on, whether or not we would be able to continue to do ministry. And we went overnight from this to having a multi-million dollar budget. It's huge. Now, because we had so many changes, because we sold the property, we ended up moving, buying a smaller piece of property, and we, we purchased it with cash, so we didn't have any debt. Um, because we did that, and because we had the change of, of leadership, change of pastoral roles, um, unfortunately, if you've been in church for a long time, you realize that when change happens, people don't want to stick around for that. You have a lot of people that resist change when stuff like that happens. And that's unfortunately what happened when we went through all of these transitions. We lost a lot of people. Now, Elizabeth and I, we were still very determined that we were going to do everything we could to make sure that this church succeeded, or at least in our mind, what a church succeeding would be. But after a while, we noticed that there was an issue within our church. We noticed that there was an issue with the culture of our church. The people that had decided to stay, and we were thankful that they decided to stay, but these particular people, they had a lack of commitment. So we found out that really the only reason why they stayed is because they weren't really comfortable to leave. They were super comfortable being exactly where they were, and they didn't want to change. They didn't want to make that drastic of a change, I should say. They didn't desire to see the church grow past the numbers that they were at. They were totally content just being this very small group of people and, and not worrying about going outside of the four walls and reaching others. They weren't concerned about raising up the next generation of, of leaders, raising up the next generation of believers. And Elizabeth and I were trying everything we could to motivate these people. I mean, everything in the book. We were trying to get this fire lit with inside of these individuals. You know, trying to preach the importance of raising up the next generation. Preach the importance of reaching the lost. Going outside of the four walls and not just sitting inside of a building and hoping that somebody would just come in and hear what you have to say. But we couldn't motivate these individuals. We couldn't motivate them. And it got to the point where Elizabeth and I were in charge of doing literally everything within the church. We were in charge of preaching. We were in charge of leading worship. We were in charge of leading Sunday school or leading uh, youth on Sundays or leading children's ministry. We were in charge of all of it, and we just couldn't do it. We couldn't. We were stretched so thin. There was no possible way that we could be at every single place at one time. So we sat down. We had heart-to-heart -heart with these people and say, we need you to volunteer. We need you to volunteer. We need you to help out with the youth. If we're going to offer a Sunday school hour, we need to offer it for everybody, all ages. And we even said plainly, if we're not going to have somebody do youth, we're just not going to have Sunday school. We're not going to offer something if we can't offer it to everybody. And if we're going to offer it to anybody, it's going to be the youth. It ain't going to be you. All right? 
it's a heart check here, you know. We're, it's not going to be you. We have that much importance on youth and, and watching them grow. We reached out to people to volunteer, to sign up, help us out. But they just didn't see the need. Nobody signed up. Nobody cared. Nobody wanted to see growth. They didn't share the same concerns that we had about reaching the lost. They didn't share the same concerns over giving. Now, we had a lot of money in the bank, but we still stressed the importance of giving and how that's part of our worship. But they didn't share that same principle that we had. So we did the math. You know, how long can this church last the way that it is, the way that we're going? How long can we sustain ourselves? And basically, we came up with, if nobody ever gave money, if no one ever tithed, and we just lived off of what we had in the bank, we could probably coast along as a church for about seven to ten years. And now, as a church, you're thinking, man, that's great. If you worked in the church or you've been part of any sort of leadership team within a church, hey, that's great. You have seven to ten years of, of we're not going anywhere. We're here. That was financial security for the church. It was also financial security for me and Elizabeth. This was our livelihood. We were both working there full time. So during this time, we found ourselves praying just a little bit differently than we had before. See, our prayers were selfish at first. You know, we were praying for church growth. God, please just make our church grow. Make, make the people care. Bring the people in. Just bring them to us since we're no one's willing to go out. Bring them to us then. Help us grow. We were praying for financial stability, not only for the church, but we were praying it for ourselves. You know, we had been poor before. When we started off in ministry, I was the only one working, and she was in school, and I was making basically $350 every two weeks, and this is what we lived off of. We understood what it meant to live paycheck to paycheck, to live by what we had, and that's it. And at the time, we just were not interested in going back to that. We finally got to a place where we were just a little bit more secure, and we were like, God, please, don't put us back there. We don't want to go back there. But things just weren't getting better when we were praying this way. Things just stayed the same. Nothing changed. But then our prayers changed from inwardly focused things to God-focused things. Praying not for our will, but for God's will to be done in the whole situation. After we started praying like this, we had a sense of actually what we needed to do. Before this, we had no idea. We said, okay, maybe we can coast along for 10 years. But when we started praying with a God-focused mindset, we got a different sense of what we should be doing. And this sounds weird. I, I know that it sounds weird, and it sounded weird to us at first, but we actually felt the call to close the church doors. And that's weird to think about. Why would you do that? Kevin even talked about this a few months ago, I think, at the vision night, where he said you have churches that are thriving, you have people coming in excited, reaching the lost, and then you have churches that move from that stage to a museum stage where people come in and they just look at things and they say, oh, that music was so pretty and the preaching was great, but then they leave and nothing happens, and eventually that church goes to a mausoleum, right? Our church was in the mausoleum stage, and we recognized this. So we decided that we were going to do something radical instead. We weren't just going to coast along for seven to ten years. We decided that we were going to take the building that we had purchased, that we completely owned, all the land that we had, that we had purchased, and we were going to donate it 
Just give it away to a local youth organization. Remember I said we believe wholeheartedly in youth and raising up that generation. We gave the building of the land to a, a local youth organization that helps with kids who are underprivileged. It gives them a safe place to be. They even host recovery meetings for addicts in this place. They do wonderful things. They had never had a building. They were struggling month to month to pay the bills. And we said, listen, we want to help you, and we can take our building. And you keep doing what you're doing. And you don't worry about the financial strain that you're going through because not only are we going to give you this building, we're going to give you enough money to pay for a full-time staff member for at least a year. And we're going to give you enough money that you're going to be able to put that in your savings account and you're going to be well off for quite some time because we believe in that. We decided that we were going to take the rest of that money. Remember I said we had $2 million at this point, $2 million in the account. We took the rest of that money. We donated it all. We gave it to local churches within the community. We donated some of it to national charities. And then we also gave to global organizations. And we truly believe that when we donated all of this, when we did this, we made a much bigger impact on the world on the community than we would have if we had just sat in our church and hoped that somebody would come in and hear us preach. Instead of saying that we were going to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we said, we're going to prove it. And by doing this, we believe that we blessed many people and that many people came to know Jesus through that. And we were not sad. Of course, when we did this, we got rid of everything. We were left wondering, now what are we going to do, right? This was our livelihood. This, these were our jobs. What are we going to do? So we did the natural thing. We decided we were going to move to Richmond. <laughs> and you're wondering, like, why would you want to move to Richmond? And it's like, honestly, I have no idea. Prior to this, we had no uh, interest, no thought that we would ever go to Richmond and live there, but we actually came to visit my sister. My family lives here, and we came to visit them last summer. It's been about a year now, and while we were here, we just said, we sensed something within this place. There was something that was drawing us to this place, and we said, man, I feel like God's bringing us here for something. We don't know what it is. We don't know where He's taking us. But we're going to follow what God is telling us to do. We're going to go where God says to go. We were trusting God. And when I think about all that happened, I noticed that our, our story changed substantially when we started approaching prayer differently. We stopped praying for what we wanted. We started praying for what God wanted. We stopped praying for our wants, where we wanted to be, what we wanted to do, how we wanted to live our lives. And we started praying for God's will, where He wanted us to be, what He wanted us to do, how He wanted us to live our lives. Now, we weren't the first people in the world to make the mistake of praying wrong or approaching prayer with a, with a wrong heart or a selfish heart. If you look at Matthew chapter 6, Jesus speaks on people who approach prayer in the wrong way. But then he goes on to show us how we should approach prayer. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. 
When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Jesus gives us a perfect model of how prayer is supposed to be, but not before giving us a warning of how prayer definitely should not be. When you look at verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. Now, to completely understand the kind of people that Jesus was referring to, you kind of have to understand the Jewish culture of the time. Judaism at the time emphasized prayer a whole lot. They had so many different types of prayers that they had, and they had different times of day that they were supposed to say these prayers. And no matter where you were, you should stop. If you're a good, practicing a Jewish person, you should stop where you're at, and you needed to pray those prayers at those specific times. And there were people who just so happened to always find themselves out in a public place when all of these times would show up. We're not just talking about every now and then, right? Like, oops, I'm out in public. Oh well. These people would always find themselves out and about. Why? Because they wanted to be seen. They wanted people to think that they had their life together, that they had the most holy life that they were close to God. They wanted people to see how holy they were. See, they were praying for self-gratification. They weren't praying for anything more. So when Jesus says that they have received their complete reward, he's saying they're getting self-gratification, and that's it. They were looking for attention, and they got it. They got what they wanted, but that's all they got. They could fool people into believing that they were completely holy, but Jesus was on to what they were doing. He knew their true motivations. He knew that this type of mindset didn't lead to a fulfilling relationship with God. Now, if you have something to write down with, I've got the big idea for you today, and it's this. When we approach God with selfish prayer, we create a relational disconnect. When we approach God with selfish prayer, we create a relational disconnect. Now, I want to tell you about when I first started dating Elizabeth. Now, if any of you in this room have ever started a new relationship, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But you have this passion. You have this mindset where you want to see this person all the time. They're, they're on your every thought at every moment, every day, and you can't get enough of seeing them. So you're doing what? You're putting in the work to this relationship to make it work. You're putting your best foot forward. You don't want to be a slob. You want to make sure that they see the best of you. So when I was dating Elizabeth at first, I'll tell you, man, I was a romantic. <laughs> Some of you would, if you know me, you'd be like, but you have the emotional status of a brick. And, uh, and that's true a lot of the time. But when I get passionate about something, that's not true at all. I can get into that mess. Now, I was really into Elizabeth, and I really wanted her to like me, so I did all sorts of stuff. I would buy her flowers on random times, you know? Not just on special occasions. 
not just Valentine's Day or a birthday or, or something like that. We're talking random days, Wednesday at 2 o'clock. You know, here's your flowers, right? I found out later she didn't really like flowers, but hey, <laughs> I was trying. That's all that mattered. I'd make her surprise dinners. I would go into her house when she wasn't there, not in a real creepy way or anything like that, but like, you know, I was allowed to do this, so I would go into her house and I'd make her dinner and I would make it fancy, right? That Carabas stuff. Or like, no, I didn't go to Carabas or Olive Garden. No, I made it. I'd go find the recipes and I'd make it. And I made it fancy. I had all the nice decorations everywhere. I had the flowers on the table. I had the, the goblets of water, you know, real fancy stuff. And I'd make fettuccine Alfredo and sprinkle some cheese on there, you know, some grated cheese, some nice cheese. And uh, real nice. And, <laughs> you know, and you get the little plate and you put the olive oil on it. And you put the little herbs in it, you know, so you can dip your garlic bread in it. That, that's kind of stuff. I made a mixtape. All right? All right, I mean, a mixtape. You know, and I wanted it to get the vibe of being in an Italian restaurant. Put some Michael Buble on there. You know, I put some Nora Jones. I wanted, to, I wanted to set the mood of what we were doing. Here, hey, I was trying to impress her. I did this. I remember I even went on the computer and I, and I got on Word and I found, like, the most fancy font, right? All this cursive that you could barely understand and read, right? And I, and I typed it up about, like, you're cordially invited, right? And I don't remember anything else I said. I just remember I said, you're cordially invited, because I was really impressed that I remembered to put that. And I, and I made the note real fancy. I got all dressed up. I put the note on the front door so that when she got home, she'd see it. And it said, you know, go put on the nicest thing you have. It was like, then the meeting in the kitchen. And I did that kind of stuff. I was romantic. I loved it. And I, and I would leave notes on her car. I wasn't thinking of me. I was thinking of her. I wanted to impress her. I wanted to put my best foot forward. But then what happened? We got married. <laughs> Things changed. I got really comfortable. <laughs> I started worrying about my own comfort a little bit more than hers. I stopped doing all the nice gestures. And as a result, that created a relational disconnect between us because she didn't change. And most of the time, the women, they don't change. They're exactly the same. They're still doing the same thing. They're still caring. And the guys, man, we change. We stopped putting that investment into it. She didn't get lazy, I did. It's something I had to work on. It's something I still need to work on. I'm not going to look at her because she's going to make me feel bad about myself. <laughs> a relationship is something that you have to constantly work on. And the same can be said about our relationship with God. When we pray, are we focused on us alone, about what we want, how we want it, when we want it? Or are we focused on God, what God wants for us? Are we focused on glorifying ourselves? Do we want people to see us praying or acting a certain way so that they think we have it all together, that we're really holy, that we're close to God? Or are we focused on glorifying God? Are we just praying on and on so we sound really spiritual? You know what I'm talking about. You have been around people that like to pray on and on and on and on. And you're looking at your watch and you're saying, dude, this is taking way too long. You know, those people really love to pray right before you're about to eat, right? On Thanksgiving. Come on, man. It's 2 o'clock. We haven't had lunch. It's been 8 hours since we had something to eat. Let's make this quick, you know. And those people love to go on and on and on and on and on. Jesus 
points these people out to us too. The Gentiles of Jesus' time did this. And see, they were a part of pagan religions where they had many gods. And they would pray to many gods. The, their prayers were designed to manipulate the gods to get what they wanted. And what they would do is they would just ramble on and on and they would just list off the names of all these gods hoping that they would get one's attention. And maybe that one would do exactly what they wanted. They would remind the gods that they owed them a favor, right? Hey, remember, I burnt this offering over here or I did this chant over here. You owe me something here. There is no relationship in this kind of prayer. There is no concern to deepen or strengthen the relationship. There is a relational disconnect. And the Jewish believers at the time that Jesus was talking to, they would have been completely ashamed and shocked that Jesus was even comparing them to the Gentiles and their pagan religions. How dare you? But Jesus was calling these individuals out. Their prayers had become self-serving. They didn't pray to deepen their relationship with God. And if we aren't careful, we can fall into these kind of traps too. Praying for selfish reasons. Causing a relational disconnect with God. So you might be asking, how do we approach God in prayer then? Well, I believe that there are four ways that we can approach God in prayer. And we find these four ways in the model that Jesus set out for us. The first one is this. Approach God with reverence. We see that at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. When we approach God with reverence, we're acknowledging that God exists. God, you're real. God, you created the world. You created us. All that we are is because of you. Without you, there is no us. We have experienced your presence. You're the real deal. When we approach God with reverence, we're acknowledging the kind of God He truly is. Our God is holy. Our God is just. And our God is the embodiment of love. Now, I want you to picture this. Imagine you're approaching a king, and we're talking like Game of Thrones days, okay? You shouldn't watch this show if you haven't, so don't go and do that. I'm not telling you you should, but just a time period thing, right? Imagine approaching a king. I mean, how would you act while you're approaching this king? I mean, your eyes would be fixated on the king displaying reverence, knowing exactly your place in all of this. Why? Because you know who's in control and you know it's not you. So to sum it up, to be reverent is to know that God is real. To be reverent is to know the character of God. And lastly, it's to be obedient to God. The second way that we can approach prayer, or approach God in prayer is this. Approach God with humility. We see that in verse 10. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need. When we approach God with humility, we are acknowledging that the world is not as it should be. People are lost. People are homeless. People are starving. You can step outside this church, go down the road, and you can see all of this kind of stuff happening. Kids are abandoned. 
Growing up thinking their parents don't care about them, whether they live or they die. People are far from God. So when we say, may your kingdom come soon, we're saying, God, come, make this world right again. We know that this is not what you designed for us. We know that when you created this world, this isn't what you had in mind. Come soon, make the world right again. See, we're acknowledging that his will is superior to our own will. When Elizabeth and I were back in Nashville, we changed the way that we prayed. When we prayed for his will over our own, things changed. Lives were changed. People were blessed. Ministries were blessed. People came to know God. An impact was made. And God was given all the glory. It wasn't us. We didn't do this on our own. We didn't come up with this idea on our own. It came from God. Because we submitted to the will of God. Not our will, but your will be done. And we didn't need to worry about what we were going to do when it was all gone. We didn't have to worry. We had plenty to worry about. But we knew that God was in control. And we know that God gives us what we truly need. It may not be what we want. And it may not be what we had in mind or we had planned. But He gives you what you truly need. The third way that we can approach God in prayer is this. Approach God with forgiveness. Now, you might be wondering, like, whoa, 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 what do you mean approach God with forgiveness? What do we need to forgive God for? I'm not saying that. We need to approach God with a heart of forgiveness. And we see this in verse 12. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. When we approach God with a heart of forgiveness, we understand how huge God's grace and mercy truly is. We understand that we don't deserve it. And we understand how necessary it is to pass that forgiveness on to other people. Before we can honestly pray, we have to acknowledge that we have sinned. We have to acknowledge our shortfalls. Paul tells us that we have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's no disputing sin in your life. There's no disputing that we all have sinned. There's no disputing that people are going to let you down in this life. People are going to sin against you. They're going to treat you unfairly. They're going to treat you poorly. Peter even asked Jesus, how many times should we even put up with people like this? Should we just forgive them seven times and then just move along? And Jesus says, no. Seven times, 70 times. You keep forgiving people. It never stops. Jesus goes on to say, if you continue reading on with Matthew chapter 6, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive your neighbor, God isn't going to forgive you. So the literal meaning of forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us is forgive us our sins in proportion to how we forgive other people. Well, that's scary. That's scary, right? How often do we forgive with this in mind? How often do we pray for forgiveness with that in mind? We have to approach prayer with a true heart of forgiveness. If you want the grace and mercy of God, you've got to be willing to extend that grace and mercy to your brothers and sisters. Now finally, the last way that we can approach God... And prayer is this. Approach God with alertness. 
Verse 13 says, And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. In 1 Peter it says, Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting for someone to devour. When we approach God with alertness, we're acknowledging our weakness. We're acknowledging that we fall short, that we sin, that we fail, that we let people down. We let ourselves down. We're acknowledging that we're susceptible to sin and temptation. And we can't do this on our own. We're acknowledging, God, we need you. Without you, I have no hope in overcoming this. Whatever this obstacle is in your life, you have no hope outside of God. But I tell you, there is a defense for this. And it's Jesus. See, Jesus is not just a figure in a book that we read about and we talk about every single week. He's not just some nice guy that, has, that did some really cool things. No, Jesus is a living presence. He's a living presence in your life. We have a strong defense against temptation when we believe that Jesus is with us continually. He doesn't just walk away and leave us and come back when we call upon His name. We have a strong defense against temptation when we pray. When we have this life of praying without ceasing, right? See, I view prayer as an ongoing conversation with God. It never ends. It doesn't stop. See, I used to have this view on prayer about it having a specific beginning and it having a specific end, right? I used to refer to this as the AOL prayer. If anybody remembers America Online, does anybody even remember this at this point? Right? You'd plug your computer into the phone line and, and you'd sign on to the internet. That's a foreign concept anymore. You had to sign on to the internet. You just didn't have it at your fingertips all the time. You had to wait a minute to five minutes, however long your connection was, for the, to even log on. And you'd have to listen to that annoying sound for the entire time. And eventually you'd get the home screen pop up and you'd get that welcome, right? This is how I would view prayer. You know, you were signing on. Dear God, that was my sign-on. I was logged in. You know, and I would say what I had to say. And then I would sign off. I would say, Amen. That was my logging off. You know? Like, if I didn't say Amen, that God was still just rumbling around in there. And I'm thinking, Hey, you know, this is kind of weird. You know, I'm thinking about how I'm going to ask this girl out. I need you to kind of exit. You know, it's a little awkward for you to be listening, right? So I had to log off. I had to sign out. Goodbye. That's how I viewed prayer at the beginning. But this thought process lacks a relational attitude. God longs for a relationship with us. Understand this. God wants to be in relationship with you. And when we pray, we're speaking to the Creator who saved us. The Creator who gives us grace. Who gives us mercy. And when we pray, it should come from a genuine heart that seeks a deepening relationship with the one true God. My prayer for you today is this. That you would be passionate for God and for His people. That you would develop a mind for mission. That you would step outside of these four walls. That you would have a passion to bring others to know Jesus. That you would long to see His kingdom come on this earth. That you would take ownership of the call that God has in your life. Every single one of you has a calling in your life. 
I pray that you would serve him at your highest level. Give your best. That you would be passionate about prayer. That it wouldn't just be something you check off your to-do Christian list that makes you really good. But that you would pray authentically. That you wouldn't put uh, on a front when you're around people. But you would be who you were created to be. And that you would remain in constant conversation with our Creator. That you would grow on a deeper level with God. And that you would see that He longs to be in a relationship with you. And finally, I pray that the passion that you have for God would be infectious. That you would be a light in this world. That you would be salt of this earth. Let's pray. God, we come to you today and we acknowledge your greatness. We acknowledge that you are who you say you are. That you are the one true God. Without you, we have nothing. Everything in this world is possible because it comes from you. And because it comes from you, God, it is good. It is right. God, help us to find the sin that is within our lives, to acknowledge this, to realize that we fall short, that we don't deserve the grace and mercy that you have for us, but also acknowledge, God, that you sent your Son to die for us, to wash away those sins, to take the sins upon Him. Help us to acknowledge this, God, and to realize just how great and loving you truly are. Help us to see, God, that you are all that we need in this world. Help us to see that we have a great responsibility, not only to just be in constant communion with you, but also in constant communion with our brothers and sisters. Help us to have a desire to reach the lost. Help us to have a desire to bring others to you, to bring them into a relationship with you so that they can see what they're missing, so that they can see what truly fills that void that they may be feeling at this time. I'm going to pause for a moment. You guys just keep your eyes closed. If there's somebody in this room that feels like they're ready to make that jump, to make the next step, to follow Jesus, to